Hello, I'm Diana Thomas. And I'm Tom Harper. Welcome to That Will the Smith Show. A podcast about the historical, geographical, natural and human background to the world of Will the Smith. Open was the word for the high veld. It stretched away, flat and empty, grass and brown grass dwindling to a distant meeting with the pale, empty sky. But the loneliness could not blunt the edge of their excitement. Each mile covered, each successive camp along the ribbon road, ground it sharper, until at last they saw the name in writing for the first time. Forlorn as a scarecrow in a ploughed land, the signpost pointed right and said, Pretoria pointed left and said, Whitwater's Round. The Ridge of White Waters, whispered Sean. It had a ring to it, that name. A ring like a hundred millions in gold. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, the the Whitwater's Round uh, and what became of it, which of course is indeed many more than a hundred millions in gold. Uh, the, the gold fields that were found there and the city that sprang up uh, around it of Johannesburg. Um, which forms the part of the action, really the heart of the action of when the lion feeds. Um, so, Diana, that passage you read, that is um, as our hero Sean and his companion Duff uh, come to uh, the Whitwater's Rand for the first time, having come across the mountains from Natal. Um, and what it is about that passage that um, that kind of grabs you? It's the It's the sense of... The fact that A, it's, it's still an empty country. Mm. And B, he had the, the name has a ring to it, but they have no specific information, as it were, to attach to that ring. And it's just an idea, it's a dream, it's a promise, which I guess is true of all those great 19th century gold rushes, like California or what have you, um, which must have been, actually, a little bit earlier, it was the 49ers, weren't they? So it was 30 years earlier. Yeah. And in fact, what's interesting, I think, in the gold rush is that in the South African gold rush, a lot of the mining engineers and also the prostitutes are American. Uh, and they've, they've all gained their relative, relative relevant experience from America. And then they ship over to South Africa to set up shop. Uh, well, and in the same way, of course, that, that the sort of shacks turn into San Francisco and you know, that all create San Francisco. So we are going to create Johannesburg. But what's also interesting is that the next thing that happens is that they see for the first time the land where the gold is meant to be. And and it's just, as it says here, two ridges ran side by side, north and south, four miles or so apart. In the shallow valley between, they could see the flash of sun off the swamp pools that gave the hills their name. And then Sean groans, look at them, because they see tents and wagons lined along that valley and they think we're too late. I mean, because at that point, they have no, nobody has any idea of the extent of this. And what they fear is they are going to be arriving and all the best um, plots would have been staked out and would have been, all the best claims would have been made and there'll be nothing left for them. 
And, and so that's their first desperate thought is, can we get down there and get some land, some claim, some, something which might have gold underneath it? Because at this point, they have absolutely nothing. Yeah. And again, this, um, as we'll see throughout this episode, um, is mirroring very much what happened, the, the actual historical progression of the gold fields. So people identify that there's gold there quite early on, and everyone rushes on and stakes out a claim. But um, because I think one of the key things geologically about the Whitwaters Rand is that it's not alluvial gold. It's not gold that you can just pan on the surface uh, and and anyone with a sieve can basically um, try their hand. It's it's in hard rock that needs to be kind of blasted out and then needs to be processed in in very kind of for the time complex machinery. And so y- you cannot just rock up with a pickaxe and, 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 and a sieve and start going at it. You need the equipment. So although people know or suspect there's gold there and they're busy staking their claims, they can't actually work it for a very long time. And there's this great episode uh, historically where Cecil Rhodes, who's made his fortune in diamonds, um, comes with his with his people to inspect it. And uh, because they they get the wrong end of the stick, they sort of pass up all sorts of claims that later turn out to be um, phenomenally rich uh, gold-bearing uh, plots. So, yeah, there is a sense of everyone's kind of hustling for a, a scrap of land that they're not entirely sure what to do with. Yes, and many of the best ones have been taken, or so it seems. But luckily, luckily, the um, as it turns out, the future of Johannesburg is, is to some extent dependent on a lady we've met in previous podcasts, the one and only Candy Reitenbach, proprietress of the local saloon, who happens to have a few claims in her possession. She's about to sell to somebody else until the sweet-talking, silver-tongued, posh, duffered Charliewood, Duff, Sean's best friend, sweet-talks Candy. Uh, more than talks, I think. First into bed, I was going to say. <laughs> And I can't remember if the, if, if the bed comes first or the negotiations come first. I think they proceed more or less in tandem. Yeah. <laughs> Although it's a, it's a strange conversation to be having in flagrante. Not one I've ever had, I must say. Um, but in any event, um, yes, they get hold of these claims on a basis that they, they get an option for $10 and, they, and they'll have to pay her $10,000 if, um, if there is gold. And then the actual drama of trying desperately to find some some productive rock is very well um, and thrillingly explained by Wilbert Smith, as is, in fact, the geology. Because as you were saying, the gold is in the rock, but it's not in all the rock. It's in these reefs, in in the particular strands of rock or levels of rock, which themselves are kind of waving up and down coming close to the surface, plunging down to earth, turning left and right. They're sort of, you, it's basically strands of spaghetti, golden spaghetti. Yeah. And you have to put your fork in and hope that you hit one of the golden strands. And of course, this being fiction, after many an adventure and, and when all their money is running out and when there's no hope left, Duff and Sean hit gold and hit it big. And they then, as you rightly say, they have to get hold of this machinery. And it takes weeks, I think, like eight weeks or something to get to them. And then it's all rusty when it arrives because the rock has to be crushed 
And you can just imagine these old steam-powered thumping things going all day long. And all they do is they crush the rock and they crush the rock. And then the rock is mixed with um, a mercury. Mercury, yeah. Which must have been the most toxic process. And, 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 and if there's any gold in the rock, it sticks to the mercury. And the mercury is then evaporated and condensed again to repeat the process. And with any luck, you have some gold. And, and at first, Sean and Duff only have tiny little scraps until they finally get great big nuggets. And the nuggets eventually turn in the bars. There's a wonderful point in which, in which they actually are standing with the Sean and Duff have got a 50-pound weight of gold in a bar, and they know their fortune is made. And this and the other finds like it precipitate this extraordinary explosion, as it were, urban explosion, in which these tents and wagons turn into huts, turn into houses, turn into a town, turn into Johannesburg which is going to become the biggest city in South Africa, must be one, actually, well, certainly was for a very long time, one of the biggest cities in Africa as a whole, probably not so now. Yeah, and it's, um, I think anytime you're writing a historical novel, which this is, um, amongst other things, when the history is in sympathy with your characters, that's when it gets really strong. And I think what works really well in this book is that Wilbur is weaving in the story of the growth of Johannesburg, mirroring the growth of the, the, of Sean's fortunes and also the changes in his character. Um, and in a sense, because the great thing about, I think the fascinating thing is all the claims that that are bought when, when the, the real life miners and, and speculators and prospectors are going around, what they're basically buying is they're buying farms because all that is there is farmers. The, the Boer trekkers have come across, they've declared their republic and they've set up farms because that's the Boer dream is to just to have your kind of 5,000 acres and your, and your herd of cattle. And so it really is uh, a, a, a rural agra- agricultural kind of landscape uh, and or pastoral landscape. And into this suddenly gets plonked um, this city that um, just grows from nothing into, as you say, an enormous city. And it, it's sort of that change from agricultural, rural, probably quite innocent through to this depraved, I'm always thinking of sort of Moss Eisley in Star Wars, you know, reckless hive of scum and villainy, um, is sort of mirroring Sean getting richer, but also um, his his soul becoming kind of corrupted. Well, it's also fascinating, just to go back a little bit. Well, the two thoughts struck me as I was reading this. The first is, had the Afrikaners heard of mineral rights? <laughs> All these poor dumb farmers who sold off their land for, I don't know, whatever it was, per acre, only to discover the people who bought it had become multimillionaires. But but in true Sean Courtney fashion, and this, I think, is an accurate reflection of the kind of, to use another American analogy, kind of Wild West aspect of the, of the, of the, gold, the gold rush, it's roughnecks. And there's a lot of fighting goes on. In fact, Sean, at one point, when they've run out of money, raises the finances they need to keep going by essentially being a prize fighter, by putting himself in a ring and daring all comers to, um, to, to beat him. And a series of spectacular fights happen. And I need to say one of the people he fights with, in fact, the best fighter, then becomes a close friend because, because they sort of tested one another in battle. And there's even a kind of gunfight because what happens is that a bunch, a bunch of armed guys just come along and think, well, this, these, these people are all making a lot of money. 
why don't we just take their land? And, and so there's a pitched battle, basically. Part of which is one, because they take the gigantic um, tank, I guess, in which all the steam is created for the rock pulping machine, and they get the Zulus to roll it down the hill yeah. at the oncoming bad guys. And there's this wonderful scene in which the Zulus are chanting out um, their, their kind of war cry as they, as they prepare to roll successfully. The, the, um, this great tank downhill to crush the oncoming people. Yeah, and, th- and then I think once they've crushed them, they butcher them with their spears. Um, so it's this like brilliant mashup of the steam age and the um, traditional kind of um, African... The, the chant goes, where are the children of Zulu? Here. Where are the spears of Zulu? Here. How bright are the spears of Zulu? Brighter than the sun. How hungry are the spears of Zulu? hungrier than the locusts. <laughs> I'm prepared to believe that that actually was the chant. Mm, yes. Yes. So this, the point is that, that it started out as a lawless. And then, then the first thing that happens in the book under the leadership of Sean and Duff, but I'm sure, is, is the creation of the Diggers Committee. Yes, which, um, again, is sort of part of the evolution. They go from a kind of complete outlaw um, kind of anarchic state uh, and then the diggers committee and then that becomes a sort of hunter effectively that's kind of running the town Um, and then it becomes a sort of stock market cabal uh, and then uh, ultimately they sort of all join forces into a a monopoly effectively um, that runs the place Uh, and again historically I think it's sort of without being in any way um, bogged down in the detail it's sort of echoing the fact that as soon as Johannesburg gets going, there's a constant tension between the, the people running in Johannesburg and running Johannesburg, who are what the, the Boers call Uitlanders, um, who are mainly English, but Ger- German, um, Americans uh, from all over the world who flooded in, uh, as well as obviously uh, black African workers who've come into work the mines. Um, and the Boers, because under the laws of the Transvaal Republic, uh, only the, um, the the Boers have um, voting rights. So political power is vested in in the farmers, but uh, actually the vast majority of the population um, are disenfranchised, and that that's a constant um, tent sore point between them. And in fact, Johannesburg, I think for. Um, years and years to come doesn't even have its own recognised government. It only has a what's called I think it's called like a sanitation commission. I think what we're seeing in in these um, Whitwaters Round Johannesburg passages are, are two things um, that are very characteristic of Wilbur's writing. One of them being the one of them is a small thing, but it's always fascinated me that he's quite reluctant to use real historical people but he's quite happy to use their names. So the uh, American that he that Sean Courtney fights um, in his boxing match, in his prize fight, who then goes on to, be, to work for him, is called Timothy Curtis. Um, and there is actually an American mining engineer called Joseph Curtis who works with um, the big uh, uh, gold companies, the big investors um, in, in history. So clearly the, the, you know, having an American engineer called Curtis as a character, um, has appealed to Wilbur. He doesn't want to use the, the, the real person, because I guess that limits him. So he's just um, made him, given the name to someone different. And you see that get quite often in Wilbur's writing, that he uses a name, but puts it on a, a different but similar character, which I've always thought is interesting, uh, an interesting choice as a historical novelist. 
Um, the other thing which I think we need to acknowledge is that on the detail of of mining and of how this thing evolves, uh, yeah, I think Wilbur is um, incredibly evocative uh, and accurate. Uh, but I think we need to acknowledge that he's not above um, playing with the timeline to suit his purposes. So I think in actual fact, the gold rush starts in 1886, doesn't really get going until 1887. Um, and it's 1888 that it's really in full swing. Whereas in, in this book, uh, I mean, the, the last date was the Zulu War in 1879, but not that much time you understand has passed. Um, and actually, at some point, it's it, it, by the time Sean's made his fortune, it's 1886. So Wilbur's playing a little bit loose with the dates, which again is something that you see throughout his books, because what he's, he's not interested in, in being, you know, calendar accurate. You know, he's 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 got other purposes. I, I mean, this is this is a, a question always that arises with, you know, when when people write historical novels or they adapt books to films. That you get the kind of pedantic thing, but that isn't exactly the truth, or that isn't mm. exact. Well, no, it's a fiction. I mean, that's the that's the whole point. And 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 for a fiction, for an author, the, the truth of fiction is, as it were, a truth of spirit. Have you caught the spirit of the time? Have you caught the spirit of the place? Are your characters believable and human, and what have you? And yeah, I mean, it's it's not. He has no duty to follow any particular calendar and, I, and when you're reading it it all it all flirt as a piece of narrative fiction it works that's his job is to is to um i mean i absolutely take what you're saying and i'm sure there would have been people who would have actually they couldn't in south africa because they weren't allowed to read it but <laughs> had they been allowed to read it i'm sure there'd have been indignant burgers from johannesburg you know or wherever saying but you've got this all wrong it was you know da 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 but as a piece of fiction, he's got it completely right. Yeah. Uh, in, interestingly, though, about your names, Lord Chelmsford is named, Chetaway is named, the Chetaway is the, 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 yeah, the king, yeah. and Kruger is named, unless the next thing that happens, the, the Kruger is the president, I guess, of the, of the Republic. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And he suddenly realizes that, that although, I mean, the interesting thing about Johannesburg as it's becoming is that, yes, it's, the people there are disenfranchised. On the other hand, they have all the money. <laughs> and yes. Very quickly, it becomes clear that Kruger is looking across and thinking, hang on a second, we can't have these unruly mob of miners and prostitutes and what have you getting extraordinarily rich, and we're not seeing any of the benefit for the state. So as governments do, he, he muscles in. But not yeah. before. I mean, I, as I recall, I'm trying to think how far, how much they've built by the time he really, he really notices that it's time for him to step in. Yeah, I mean, I think the um, just on the point of of the money is interesting. Again, historically speaking, again, this is where Wilbur's definitely putting across the historical truth is that in 1884, the whole income of the of the Boer government um, was 88,000 pounds. Um, and in 1886, so the year that the gold rush is about to start, they try to raise a loan for £5,000 and they get turned down because their credit is no good, um, the government's. By 1895, th- you know, thanks to uh, you know, the gold royalties plus all the other revenues that come from the kind of massive expansion, you know, their income is £4.2 million in, um, in those times. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're definitely onto a good thing. But Kruger's fascinating because he has this very, it's not even an 
ambivalent. He basically really dislikes the um, the whole thing because um, he's he's almost like a Jeffersonian figure in in my reading of him who thinks that you know they want this kind of virtuous republic of Dutch farmers yeah, yeah. Um, and that uh, he, there's this great quote from him where he says every ounce of gold taken from the bowels of our soil uh, will yet have to be weighed up with rivers of tears um so he's very um and he calls johannesburg he calls it uh, again apologies to our afrikaans listeners uh Deuvelstad, uh devil's town but at the same time um his his entire government and his state that he he's sort of nurtured nur- nursed into being um are reliant on 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 this gold well, that's a, that's always the tension in the Calvinist mind, isn't it? <laughs> There's nothing unvirtuous about making it, working very hard and making a great deal of money. However, the things that people do with that money, particularly if they've made it very quickly in very large amounts, are often very unvirtuous. But the thing is that in the end, nobody ever says no to it. <laughs> his virtue did not preclude him getting his share. No. But I think... Since we're talking about the city, it's again in Wilbur's telling. You know, you see how tents become become huts, become houses, and then Sean and Duff and Candy are right at the centre of the building of the construction of the key buildings. Yeah. So there's a bit. Uh, this is before they've struck gold, where Wilbur describes it. So um, they're looking down the length of the valley. Uh, the week before, about two dozen wagons had been outspanned around Candy's hotel. But now there are at least 200. And from where they sat, they could count another eight or nine encampments, some even larger than the one around Candy's place. Wood and iron buildings were beginning to replace the canvas tents, and the whole veldt was crisscrossed with rough roads along which mounted men and wagons moved without apparent purpose. So there you get this sort of first, yes, sort of as you, exactly as you described, sort of um, wood and iron buildings starting to replace the tents. Uh, and again, and even that is just a very kind of quick stage of evolution to what's happening next. Oh, and, th- and their own mind going, goes from being surface diggings. Then they find that there is a there is a there is a, 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 a sort of stream of gold that runs through their property, and they dig down, and they dig down, and they dig down, and suddenly they're kind of three hundred feet down, and they have their mind, the candy deep, and then they have another mine, the little sister mine, and then they think, oh, well, we need an office. We should do. We should have an office where we can organise all this. And the plan was for a modest little four-room building, but it finally expanded to two stories, stinkwood floors, oak panelling, and twenty rooms. And and then they're buying, and they find themselves buying great acres of land. Sean has at one point invested in a few wagons, and suddenly they have four hundred wagons. And the speed of it, which in a in in a kind of other story you'd think any normal business story would think oh, that's absurd. I suppose now it's not quite true because the tech, the internet barons, we have a similar sort of gold rush today, which where you can you can make billions overnight. Mm. There's this, this incredible momentum which Wilbur's writing is perfectly suited to, where where there's just the gold brings with it this sort of unstoppable energy and lust, um, ex- expressed literally when they put up a whole house. <laughs> yes, so the three buildings they put up the stock exchange, the hotel, and the brothel, known as the opera house, initially put up to be an opera house until they decide, no, there's actually much better use for it. They, they start, for example, they get sort of the sort of domestication of the city because water carts are brought in to put water, because the streets are only dust, but now they can have water carts in to water down the dust so the dust doesn't get too bad. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, there's the, the great line, uh, again, is a very deadpan, uh, funny Wilbur line. With its own stock exchange in Bordel, uh, Johannesburg became a city. Uh, and I, I love that. Uh, it, it's su- su- such a Wilbur line. Um, it's basically sex sex and money. Once you got those catered for, then you can be a city. Um, and and again, I think that's not far off the, uh, the historical development of it. Um, and what you also get, though, is the development of, as it were, a ruling class. Yeah. This is in the first year. So they're bringing in people from all over Europe, the finest furniture, the finest wines. By December, there were millionaires in Johannesburg. Um, and I think of what I mean, that's like tens of millions now. Haradsky, that's the, that's the man who will be both Sean and Duff's partner and their nemesis. The Haynes brothers, Carl Locktamper, Duff Charliewood, Sean Courtney, and a dozen others. They own the mines, the land, the buildings in the city, the aristocracy of the Witwatersrand, knighted with money and crowned with gold. Thinking about it, it's odd that we live in an age now, or have just come probably, I think, to the end of an age, but certainly a 20-year period, where exactly the same process has taken place, where oligarchs in Russia, tech billionaires in California, have suddenly just at an enormous speed, become unimaginably wealthy and created, you know, their private jets and their incredible mansions and their gigantic yachts. I mean, it's it's strange to be living in a time where what Wilbur's writing about is actually weirdly sort of applicable because one sort of thinks, oh, yes, we know these people now. Yeah, and it does... That's why I think it's such an amazing setting for a novel, because, because as you say, it, when you read it, it almost strikes you as incredible that he's just pushing it too far, too fast. But then you look at the history and really, really he's not. Um, no. And it's, that's exactly how it happened. Because the thing, about, the thing about gold or diamonds is it's not like, it's like Henry Ford has to set up a production. Once you've got the stuff, you've got it. I mean... You just sell what you've got because it's, the, it's, it's as valuable as it's ever going to be right there. And, and so, so once you've found the place in the earth where you can just keep extracting it, you're just basically taking a great big bucket down into the middle of the earth and extracting it filled with money every day. You know, and yes, you have to pulp, crush down the rock and all the stuff with the mercury, but, but fundamentally, once you've, once you've struck your pay dirt, as long as it keeps paying, and as with, if you're reading Leopard Rock, on Leopard Rock, Wilbur's book, he describes how going down to gold mines in exactly that location now, mm. which are now two miles underground. Yeah. Big, kind of enormous caverns and tunnels and roads and railways, two miles underground. And the gold is still coming up. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that he captures very well in this book is uh, sort of the highs and the lows and the fact that everyone's, you know, there's, it's, it's a combination of confidence, con tricks, um, hope, fear, um, you know, the, the emotions of, that, of being in that place, you know, talk about FOMO, you know, fear of missing out, is absolutely uh, driving everyone. Um, and again, I think historically you see that uh, there's a, there's, there's a moment, I think, I think about 1890, where they think the mines are all played out uh, and the shares absolutely collapse. Um, and, and, you know, what workers are laid off. Um, and, and it sort of, 
echoes the, the, the way in which they, um, Sean and Duff, sort of put it put out that one of their minds has run out of um, of gold and that therefore it's going to be worthless. And they they spread this rumor and then they buy back the shares a week later um, and and make make a killing on it, which of course ultimately will be their undoing when they try that on a grander scale. Yes, I mean that's the thing. The, the thing about that kind of money is it can go as quickly as it comes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, to use a modern analogy, there was a point in which Rupert Murdoch was paying a large amount of money for MySpace. <laughs> yes, yes, it's seven hundred million pounds or something, wasn't it? Yes, extraordinary. But now it's nothing. Yeah. And and I sort of have a suspicion that you know Twitter could just disappear or or Facebook because because kids have moved on to something else. I mean, nowadays us oldies may use Facebook, but nobody under thirty. <laughs> yeah. And that right now it's TikTok, but it could be something. It was Snapchat. I don't. Does anybody still use Snapchat? That was great. Yeah. So, these things come and go very, very fast. And um, but but meanwhile, the city is growing and growing. And the other thing, of course, that happens, and I'm sure this is absolutely typical, is that Duff and Sean build their kind of ridiculous, vastly oversized mansion, which is modestly christened Xanadu. Yeah, which again, I have to think that Wilbur was uh, kind of slightly tipping his hat to Citizen Kane here. I, I don't know if anyone ever asked him that, but it, it, he can't not have thought of that. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and yeah, William Randall first, I guess, as, as that kind of great um, baron. What he says is that, is that, is that uh, Duff you know, is, is a great fan of, of, of the poem. They actually have inscribed in Xanadu. Yes, over the gates, yeah. Pleasure down. In any event, it's notionally it's because it's because Duff is a is a, is a fan of um, Coleridge, isn't it? Yeah, and again, as a reader, you just get so swept up in it. I think there there is just this tremendous sort of wish fulfillment uh, about this idea that in the middle of the Velt, which five three years earlier, whatever it is, has just been farmland, they've built this house which is outfitted with the finest of everything that can be got from around the world, furniture, artworks, um, the, 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 the marble floors aren't there, and um, the whole thing is um, tricked out. And again, but this is this is true. And in the same way that you get, you know, prostitutes coming all the way from America because they've heard the business is good, you get, you know, whatever the chandeliers or pianos or fine wines or construction materials they, they just you know they will go where the money is so um as extraordinary as it seems um that this place which you could only get to by ox cart a few years ago um can can have all this stuff it does because 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 it, it finds its way to where the money is 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 the chap who owns lvmh the like the french luxury what's it um uh is it arno yes arno Bernard Arno. You know, kind of one of the richest, if, if not the richest. I think he is. The, he, I think he is at the moment, at, at time of recording, he is the world's richest man. Yeah. So, so and it's the same thing because French luxury goods have gone to China and Singapore and Hong Kong because that's where the money is. Yeah. That's that's what happens, and because this is fiction, because Wilbur is science and a moral writer, there is a price to be paid for this. There is a comeuppance to be had. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a bit where um, he sort of describes how, how Sean's life is changing. Um, so Sean and Duff grew with it, with, with, with the city. Their way of life changed swiftly. Their visits to the mines fell to a weekly inspection and they left it to their hired men. A steady river of gold poured down from the ridge to their offices on Eloff Street, for the men they hired were the best that money could find. Their horizons closed in to encompass only the two panelled offices, 
the Victoria Rooms, which is their suite, um, I think, in the brothel. No, it's the hotel, I think. In the hotel, sorry, the suite, their suite in the hotel, yeah. Their horizons closed in to encompass only the two panelled offices, the Victoria Rooms, which is their suite in the hotel, uh, and the Exchange. Yet within that world, Sean found a thrill that he had never dreamed existed. He had been oblivious to it during the first feverish months. Um, he'd been so absorbed in laying the foundations that he could spare no energy for enjoying or even noticing it. Um, the power is what he's feeling. He's feeling the sense of power. And it talks about how he, a document gets delivered to him uh, and it comes from the uh, the bank manager um, rather than from a clerk, even though there's no need for it. Um, and he's be- he's become this big fish. And I think, you know, there's a very clear, um, I don't want to say morality, but um, order to the universe in, in Wilbur's work. And, you know, when you are, when your existence is being condensed down to just living indoors between a couple of locations, that's clearly a bad thing. You know, good is outdoors, rugged, hardworking, kind of earning your labour by the sweat of your brow. And, you know, living the sort of sybaritic lifestyle indoors is definitely a sign that you're on the road to ruin. It's the inner Kruger in, in the world. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Spoiler alert, all this pride, all this hubris leads to a fall. And I remember the first time that I read this book, and it would have been 35 years ago, one that would have been one of the very early ones I read of his. Um, I didn't get into the 80s. I remember the first time I read this, and when Duff and Sean are, well, outsmarted, and they lose everything. I remember being really upset for them. Yeah. Funny enough now, with the benefit of far too many years of perhaps wisdom, experience, it didn't seem like nearly such a bad thing because it kind of rescues them. Yeah. And so certainly Sean, although bad things are going to happen, is actually restored as a human being by losing all that status, all that wealth. And there's, a, there's as he goes out afterwards into the country to go elephant hunting, there's this description of him getting leaner, getting fitter, mm. his clothes again, you know. Um, and, and, and there's very much a sense that he was, in some respects, kind of dying inside in, in, this, in this kind of cocoon of wealth, and he needs to get out of it. But the city itself keeps growing. Yeah, so he goes as we discussed he goes off across the frontier into the into the wilderness uh shoots an awful lot of elephants um makes a second fortune although he doesn't realize it but he's got a fortune in ivory um in his wagons uh and then he comes back to johannesburg uh, and that's a, a lovely moment because as you say he has changed in one direction and the city has gone on developing in its own direction and, and and it's a it's a it's a lovely contrast. I always think it's like you know when you go back to your home to the town where you grew up, uh, and you realise how different you are. Um, but but in a sense, this is this is different too. They've just come into the city, and it's it's doubled in size in the in the four years. And he, he and he thinks, and his friend Duff is by now dead, and he thinks he hears Duff's laugh. It was very close, but not the same. All of it was like that, similar but subtly changed nostalgic but sad with the knowledge of loss the past was lost and he knew then that you can never go back nothing is the same for reality can only exist at one time only and in one place only then it dies and you've lost it and you must go on to find it at another time and in another place 
and and that's exactly as you say that, that as it were what was once your town isn't your town it's somebody else's town and and you the person you are needs a new place to be that person yes and that's i mean i've had that experience a few times in my life because uh, i grew up uh, in america um, and I, I lived for 10 years in a, a sort of suburban town just north of New York. And, and it was a wonderful, wonderful place. And I felt very much at home there. And I went, but then I, le- I left, I came back to the UK um, and went back s- several years later. And you look around and, you know, the, some of the shops have changed and some of the shops are the same. And, um, but it's just different. And you suddenly have this tremendous sense of not belonging um, I get it when I go back to visit my old university as well, that um, you sort of look at the undergraduates there and they, it's their place now. And, you know, you were there, it was yours. You walked around like you owned the place and now you're gone and they don't care, you know. Um, and it's, it's that same lesson that Wilbur's imparting here to Sean, uh, as you say, that um, you, you can't find yesterday and today. Uh, yeah. And which is a great part of Sean's evolution uh, as a character. Absolutely. And of course, by this point, Kruger has, this, it's in the book, has established control over the city. Some degree. Yeah. So it is paying taxes and they are, and the, and the, and the allocation of mining lots is determined now by, by Kruger. I mean, he has, he has dibs, as it were. Yeah. And, and it's, it's gradually becoming the, the, the kind of, it's, a, it's kind of like the town has been, a, you know, it's been a little kid. And then it's been this unruly adolescent. <laughs> yeah. And it's sort of got to the point where it's kind of married and is settling down. Beginning <laughs> its journey into comfortable middle age, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, though we don't, don't know at the end of where the land feeds, where the road will lead, Sean Courtney has kind of a different destiny. That's not where, you know, it's, as you say, it's not his place anymore, but then he's going to go and find other places to make his place. Yeah. And I think in that respect, I think part of Wilbur's kind of greatness as a writer is he never really labours this metaphor. Uh, he just lets it happen. But um, but in a sense, the whole of when the lion feeds um, is the kind of key moments of South African history, which seed each other in the same way that uh, Sean's every every event in Sean's life leads on to the next. So the the, the great event in the in part one of the book is the the Zulu War, and historically it's by by crushing the Zulus that the British sort of the law of unintended consequence they remove this tremendous threat to the Boers that the Boers have lived with um, for 30 odd years. And as a result, that's what emboldens the Boers to feel that they can de- declare independence and, uh, and go it alone because they don't need British protection anymore because the British have kindly wiped out the biggest threat to them. Um, so, and that's then what sort of sets the stage for obviously all the, the, the growth of uh, Johannesburg and, and, the, and the Transvaal. Um, where you then get the gold rush. And of course, it's then all the pressures that are unleashed by the gold rush, and especially these outlanders coming in uh, and agitating for more and more political rights, and of course, the money that goes with it, that ultimately will will become the the causes of the Boer War. Um, And which, of course, is where Sean Courtney is going to end up next uh, in, in the sequel. 
Though neither Wilbur nor the reader knows that at the time. No, Wilbur, as we said, Wilbur has no idea that there's going to be a sequel. He thinks this is a, a one and done, a standalone, as we would call it now. Extraordinary. I know we've talked about this before, but if ever there was a book that was screaming for a sequel, <laughs> and usually if you're writing a book that you, that you well, I suppose this is why it proves he didn't know, because if you're writing a book that you know is going to have a sequel, there's usually a little line at the end you know, which kind of is a sort of payoff, which lets the reader know, sort of, to be continued. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of, I mean, I know there's um, Tomorrow is Another Day at the end of, at the end of, actually, at the end of Gone with the Wind, there's that Tomorrow is Another Day. And that actually, you expect a sequel, and I don't think there was one. At least not. Uh, there, there was an, uh, one of these written in the 80s or maybe early 90s ones, but not by Margaret Mitchell, no. No. In this particular case, as a reader, you just kind of want to know what happens next, and not and yeah. Now I think about it, not just for Will for 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 Sean, but for the whole world that you've seen being born. Because you that is that as a reader is a tremendously exciting thing because you do feel you know you're there watching this thing yeah. just explode, and it's terribly thrilling. And going back to the point about accuracy. That's what historians are for. I was once writing a book about called Ostland, which is about um, World War II, and particularly has a lot in set in Minsk, which became a killing center. Of Jews were brought up from Theresienstadt, taken off the trains, and slaughtered. It's, it's just unutterably horrible. And I had um, a very kind historian called Roger Morehouse was kind of acting as my sort of supervisor and sort of correcting me on stuff. And I, I sent him a draft and I said, you know, is this okay? Is this okay? And he said, yeah, he said, the history is fine, but you leave that to people like me. And that was a tremendously liberating thing for me. It was like giving permission. <laughs> now, of course, with something like that, you owe it to the victims to be incredibly respectful and incredibly accurate. Yeah. But in the case of something like, like Jobo, there isn't that same moral duty. Your duty is to your reader. And that's what Wilbur serves, because he makes this story, which could be, you can imagine an economist giving quite a dry as dust account. Yeah. He makes it tremendously exciting. Abs- you're absolutely there. You're caught up in the thrill of the gold and the sex and the boozing and the building the mansions and the horse racing, all of that stuff. And yet at the same time you are, and this I think is true, I learned a huge amount about African history by reading Wilbur Smith books. Maybe I didn't learn it in the same, and maybe a historian would be rather shocked by the things that, but you yeah. learn about the spirit of the place. He really tells you about the peoples who are interacting. Right from if you go back to um, um, the very early Courtney book, Birds of Prey, you learn about the Hottentot, who are the original inhabitants. And then you see all the other tribes, the, the white tribes, the African tribes, all converging, particularly on Southern Africa, from the north and the south. And you see how they interact. And he does teach you. And if you want to know the facts, then you can then go and look at a history book. But, but, you, but I think you learn a tremendous amount whilst being outrageously entertained. Yeah, that outrageously entertained is, is, is the way of putting it. Um, yeah, I think probably the, the best way I've found of understanding South African history is that it is a constant struggle between these different groups um, and particularly the Afrikaners, the British um, and the sort of the, 
the black African tribes. But then even, but that's a gross oversimplification because there are many black African tribes who have different and diverging interests and hostilities. And all these different groups of people um, trying to co- find ways of coexisting um, and and frequently failing. Um, and what, that's what Wilbur's dramatizing. Again, the, that's what the Courtney's are living uh, as they go out in the world and try and make their fortunes. And, and I think that's, the stories would have you know plenty of power all on all by themselves because the characters are so strong and and the the action is so dramatic, but it, it just marries so perfectly with the underlying history and and the drama of that history, and and as you say, not every date is going to be accurate, not every historical personage is going to be accurate, but the 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 fundamental truth of it absolutely is right there. So that wraps up our deep deep dive into When the Lion Feeds, Wilbur Smith's first novel. And do join us next time when we'll be discussing the latest Wilbur Smith book, uh, co-authored with me, Tom Harper, which came out in April, Nemesis. So please join me, Diana Thomas. And me, Tom Harper. For the next edition of That Wilbur Smith Show. Smith's show is produced by Christopher Wynn. Music by Dewey DeLay.